Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We'll start off with 15 minutes of meditation. During that time, you're welcome to post questions. You're welcome to post anything in the chat as long as it's respectful and mindful. After that time, we'll start on the questions and answers uh, during that, that period. We're going to remove anything from the chat that isn't a question, so please, from that point on, only questions. But in the beginning, well, in the beginning, try and not chat either. Close your eyes, and we'll start with a semi-guided meditation. So we start by focusing on the stomach. If you can't feel the stomach rising and falling, you can just put your hand on your stomach. And as you experience the sensation of rising and falling, just say to yourself, rising, falling, Rising, falling, just trying to stay present and objective by using the word that is the name of the experience, keeps you focused and objective, keeps you from judging or reacting to the experience. It also helps you to see more clearly. Sometimes you really don't feel the rising and falling. You can instead just say to yourself, sitting, sitting for a bit. Just being aware of the posture, the sensations in the body, stiffness, pressure. I mean, pay attention any time your mind is taken away from the stomach. Noting whatever takes you away as the new object of meditation. For example, if you feel pain, pleasure, calm, these are called vedana feelings. If you feel any pain, focus on the pain and say to yourself, Pain, pain. And just stay with it until it goes away. Once it's gone, go back to the stomach and start again focusing on rising, falling.
Same thing if you feel happy or calm. Focus on the happy feeling, saying happy, happy. Happy, happy, happy. Not judging it, not clinging to it, not reacting to it. Just being cognizant of the nature of it as happy. If you feel calm, focus on the calm. Say calm, calm. Same thing. Once the feeling's gone, go back again to the stomach. Another object is our thoughts. You know, be distracted by thoughts of the past or future. Good thoughts, bad thoughts. Many different kinds of thoughts. The object isn't to stop ourselves from thinking. We're not trying to change our experiences, fix them, stop them, make them. I'm just trying to be clear-minded and objective about them. So when you're thinking, just try and see it as a thought. Say to yourself, thinking, thinking. It doesn't matter, good thought, bad thought, past or future. Just thinking, thinking, and then go back to the stomach.
If you're thinking a lot, you can note distracted, distracted. Just note the state of mind as distracted. And you can note other states of mind as well, like if you like something or dislike something. Say to yourself, liking, liking, disliking. Or if you want something, or if you're feeling bored or sad or worried, depressed, anxious, frustrated. Just recognize what it is you're experiencing and try to create some objectivity about it. Remind yourself it is what it is. It's nothing more, nothing less, not good, not bad, not me, not mine. Liking, liking, disliking, disliking. Bored, bored, sad, sad. Finally, you can also note your senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Just say to yourself, seeing, seeing, or hearing, hearing, whenever you experience any one of the six senses, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Okay, so now that we are a little more present, hopefully, we can move on to the Q&A session from now on. Nothing in the chat but questions. If you don't have questions or if you've asked your question, just close your eyes and take the time to be mindful. Try not to be distracted by other things, eating or drinking or reading Facebook or shopping online or playing games or something. Try and be mindful of this precious time we have together. Yeah, we do have questions. I'm addicted to YouTube. I keep watching videos until 3 a.m. How can I stop? So... Well, the first thing is to put things in perspective. That's not a terrible, terrible thing among the things that you could be doing. So it's not the answer by any means, but it's important not to blow things out of perspective because you can turn them into real monsters where you really feel awful and you hate something that's not really worth any emotion. 
So this is something disruptive in your life, but put it in perspective that it's not the end of the world, literally. And then from there, the way to stop the mind from engaging in harmful activities is not trying to stop. The way to stop is not trying to stop. Because trying to stop involves desire, aversion, and ego, a sense of control, like a power that I can manipulate the mind beyond its ordinary causal relationships. The way to stop is to see clearly the nature of your uh, unskillful, unwholesome activities and to see how they're causing you stress and suffering. So the first step um, is always going to be mindfulness. Mindfulness not just of the actual activity, but of how it makes you feel. Mindfulness of the uh, physical effects of staying up very, very late and of staring at a screen and uh, the physical effects of desire and attachment and also the mental effects, the lack of focus, the stress, whatever it is that, I mean, just the general state, not, not that it's all bad even, the good and the bad. Because of course a YouTube video could be wholesome and so there's nothing wrong in, intrinsically with watching a YouTube video. The reasons why you watch many, many, there, there's probably more that can be said about it than just um, the, the content of the videos, the reasoning for doing it. Learn about that. And don't learn about it for any reason other than to know, other than to be more clear in your mind about why you do things, why you're doing things, and the nature of the things that you're doing and as far as seeing that that they're not worth the intentions they don't um deserve the intention that you get the attention that you give them so your desire to do something isn't reasonable you'll just see the see this this is what causes it to stop not you wanting it to stop not you making it stop you seeing it clearly as a problem as a cause for stress and suffering. Just that seeing itself changes the nature of your mind. Also, I mean, there's other things. It's not going to be quite so simple because you should be practicing meditation as well. And so you'll find that as you start to see more clearly, it opens you up to other things like intentionally cultivating the skill of seeing clearly. So you'll find in your life as you put this into practice that you're more open to spending times practicing formal meditation. And when you can do that, you'll find it cascades into greater and greater mindfulness in your life. It's just a matter of navigating this uh, morass of samsara where you get distracted by so many different things that keep you from cultivating mindfulness. Do you have any advice for dealing with a depressed or suicidal friend? I always get self-conscious when they express these feelings, like I want to say the perfect thing to help them. So I don't know if you're aware, but one thing that suicide um, experts, I guess, in, in the world talk about is if you're not trained to deal with suicide, the the best thing and and the the important thing for you to do is to direct them to someone who is rather than trying to tell them um try to connect them give them a phone number to call give them a a, a hotline you know or or direct them to a professional help them find someone who is trained and does know how to deal with such people uh, but that, I mean, that's not a technically Buddhist answer, but I think it's a good one. And you could say something simpler, sim similar uh, in regards to Buddhism. Rather than trying to teach someone if you don't feel qualified, try and direct them to someone who is 
knowledgeable about Buddhism. So suicide prevention experts are pretty good, I think, at what they do. Uh, I might have some criticisms as a Buddhist monk and different ideas about how to deal with it, but as far as uh, maybe kind of melding the two, what uh, what they tell you to do in the world and and what we tell you in Buddhism is uh, not just directing them to a person who can help, but directing them towards resources that might help them be more mindful because mindfulness should help to deal with those problems, those, those feelings, those mind states. So you don't have to teach them, you don't have to give them advice per se. I mean, advice is highly overrated, I think. Uh, telling people, oh, go for a walk, um, get some exercise and so on. It's not that those are necessarily bad ideas. It's just it's not really the way to reach someone. Um, providing them with a means to uh, understand and come to terms with their feelings is far preferable. So the advice you might want to give or the direction you might want to give is towards some resources by which they can help themselves. I mean, honestly, it doesn't have to be an external resource. You can explain to them how to meditate, read our booklet on how to meditate as an example. I mean, that's what I would suggest. And then once you understand how to practice and you've maybe done some practice yourself, offer to demonstrate to them how to do walking meditation, sitting meditation, because that's not something you have to be a meditation master or something to, to do. It's really just parroting the information to them. If you have that information and you've done it some yourself, then just offer that to them. Don't try and make them feel better or something like that. You're not trained or qualified to do that. I think that's fair to say. Certainly what they tell you in suicide prevention classes. As someone with OCD and on medication, can I still benefit from meditation? Yes, I think so. I think it's going to be limited because that sort of medication is uh, disruptive of the mind's ability to face unpleasant sensations, unpleasant experiences. So ideally you want to slowly allow the mindfulness to replace the medication, the need for the medication, so that you're able to live with and deal with and face those things that you normally react to the desire to engage in OCD behavior, to be able to be with that desire, be with the thoughts, be with the urges and so on, and not react to them. But I wouldn't say just go off your medication and take med- and practice meditation, but I wouldn't also expect that the medication allows you to face your problems head on. So it's kind of a gradual thing, I would imagine. Should I practice sense restraint as a layperson? Would it be beneficial to my practice? Yes, of course. Understand there are different kinds of sense restraint. Um, one of the most effective ones is just not going near things that are going to cause you to um, be unrestrained. So don't go to parties, don't go to bars, don't go to, I don't know, don't do things that would put you in a position Ideally, put yourself in a position where you don't, um, you aren't directly in contact with those things. I, I, I don't know. Um, that it's not maybe fair to say that that's the most effective, but that's a useful temporary measure. Um, once you've done that, or or as you're doing that, try also to undertake the sense restraint of mindfulness. Mindfulness itself is the best restraint of the senses, as far as practice goes. So rather than trying to avoid this, the experiences, when you do experience things that you normally react to, try and note them and create objectivity about them, as I explained sort of in brief earlier. So that itself is a part of the sense restraint practice. It's called sati samvara.
Why do I feel like I'm watching my life happening when I'm mindful? The no-self thinking is really scary to think about. Right, so the, the, re the nature of reality is there's no being in charge. You're, you as a being is a bit simplistic. There's causes and effects. Part of that is the mental aspect, but it's only part of it. So you will see things arising without your intention for them to arise. Normally we think that's not the way it works. We think things only arise because of our intention for them to arise. That's actually not the case. So that being scary, it's scary because of our clinging to self, our clinging to our personality. It's kind of reassuring to think of ourselves as, as being a thing. And just like anything that you cling to and, and rely upon, well, you don't have that to rely upon anymore. What are you going to rely upon? You, you like it. You, you're very much attached to yourself. You care very much. And it makes you happy to have a self. And so and whenever that, that, like anything else, when that's threatened by your experiences, by theory, by things people tell you, that scares you. So in mindfulness, we're not concerned with theory. It's not about taking up the view that you don't have a self. That's, that would be wrong. It's about just seeing clearly. So what you're seeing is what you're seeing. You don't need any theory behind it. It's just what's real. You, you, you can verify for yourself the way things are, regardless of what anyone tells you. So when you're afraid, you would just say to yourself, afraid. When you're thinking, you would say thinking. When you feel like you're watching your life, you can say feeling or knowing would be more accurate. You're aware of the fact that you're not controlling things. While I'm meditating, I try to focus myself on my breathing and try to note it, but many times it becomes so shallow and slow that I'm not able to note it. What should I do? Well, um, I mean, it's one thing for it to be shallow and slow, but what you're talking about, if you can't, if you're actually not able to note it, then it would have to mean it's actually not there at all. So if it's not there, you can just note sitting, sitting, but it doesn't matter how shallow or slow it is, just note rising, just note it slowly. I have stopped watching pornography two years ago. Now I have desire to watch it again, but I have so much shame, guilt, and fear of watching it because of people saying how bad it is. What should I do? So there's no but there. You have the desire. You also have the shame, the guilt, and the fear. That's the reality. Try and, folk, try and see it like that. Arrange these things in your mind that way. There shouldn't be a but. There shouldn't even be a need to do anything about them per se but in regards to them there's something you should do and that is to be mindful all of them equally the desire the shame the guilt the fear and any thoughts you have about that worry doubt confusion it's a part of a bigger practice so if you haven't read our booklet try watch reading our booklet and consider taking up that practice in general of the four foundations of mindfulness. We also have an at-home course if you're interested in doing that. How important is it to do meditation half walking and half sitting? Can we not do just sitting? It's pretty important. Our attachment to sitting, our preference for sitting meditation is a bit of a, um, a hindrance. And you'll find that the fact that walking meditation is often something you'd rather not do is actually useful for you. Because it puts you in a position where you're doing something you don't want to do. And, and there's nothing wrong with walking meditation, so clearly the problem is with your mind. 
and what you'll start to see is that that disliking of it if there's any disliking would be a, is is really what's causing you stress and suffering walking meditation has a lot of benefits but that's that's simply as one of them the fact that we often don't want to do it because you'll find that over time that changes and sometimes you just don't want to do sitting meditation and then you'll start to realize that it has nothing to do with the actual practice so it's useful to switch like that there's other reasons as well walking is different from sitting it's a more of a practice of being aware of movements right more dynamic more challenging in that respect it's good for the body in different ways In one of your videos, you explain that the concept of personality is an illusion, but what about talent and intelligence? Are these just habits too? How does this concept apply to animals? Hmm. You're using a lot of words here. Well, not bad words, it's just they're not quite related as far as I can see. So personality is an illusion. Uh, well, that could mean different things. That could mean that the idea of us being a certain way, like I am this sort of person or that sort of person, it's not the truth. The truth is that there are habits that have been built up and those habits change over time. If you say I'm an angry sort of person, that's my personality. Well, it's, it's, it's neither who you are nor is it static. So if you keep doing it, it's going to just get worse and you'll not just be an angry person, but you'll be a very angry person. And instead, if you start to change, well, you'll no longer be an angry person. It's not personality, it's just a habits. And you bring up habits in the second part, so I guess that's how it's related. As far as talent and intelligence, so it's not all habits. There is some quality of the brain that's going to be involved, that the brain is a useful tool in the sense that it gives rise to thoughts or it affects the nature of thoughts that arise. And uh, many aspects of our physical physiology do do the same. Uh, and then there's also the the habits that are not that are long term. They can come from past lives. So there's young people who are youth prodigies and so on. As for how it applies to animals, um, I guess I don't I don't see why. There should be a question like that. I mean, it's, animals are not animals. They're just beings that were born in that form. So they're no different, per se. Uh, I guess one thing I could say about animals is that they have generally less capacity to see clearly uh, or for higher forms of thinking. And so they're going to have less personality, probably. They're going to have less... Um, intelligence of course less self-awareness just because of the simplicity of the, their mental activity and they're going to have a lot more um, base instincts and less capacity to to dampen or to override their desires and aversions much more quick to react How can I mindfully navigate emotionally charged interactions with family members? Mm -hmm. Well, it's difficult, especially because of how strong our emotions towards our family are. We become very habitually invested in the uh, interactions with our families but there's no there's no special method it's the same method as with everything if you haven't read our booklet read our booklet if you have maybe you're interested in taking an at-home course if you've done that as well well consider doing an intensive course someday You'll find it helps you much better able, makes you much better able to navigate such interactions. One thing I guess I could say in the meantime is, again, 
you can use this stopgap measure of removing yourself from the situation. So when dealing with people, sometimes the best way is to try not to engage. One thing in general as a Buddhist is to not undervalue the experience of being alone. We often feel the need to be surrounded by people, and that's often a mistake, whereas being alone would serve us much better. So try your best to keep to yourself. Don't, don't lose sight of the benefit of keeping to yourself. What are your thoughts regarding the use of noise-canceling headphones while meditating? Oh, bad idea, because you're indulging in a desire to avoid something, an aversion towards something, and you're, you're going to just increase that aversion. I had one experience when I did my first ever intensive course 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Um, there was a, they, they'd given me a, a clock to time my meditations on and, and to wake up in the morning. And the clock had a, it was a very small clock, but it had a just barely discernible tick to it. And so it was the only real noise in the room. And so it became very, very loud to my ears. And I would find myself walking to the rhythm of the clock. Tick, tick, tick. And so I hid it. I put it under my pillow uh, and on my bed. And then it was dampened, but I could still, eventually my ears still picked it up. And I became so obsessed with this that I had to, every time I did meditation, I had to cover it with a pillow and blankets and everything so I could absolutely not hear it. Uh, but by that time, I had become so attached to it that when I left that room, I was staying temporarily in another room. I did this intensive course fully, and then I was put in another room with two other people and two clocks on the wall that were out of sync, so they were going tick, 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 tick much louder and at that point i had gone through quite a bit and had realized a few things about myself and uh ended up changing my my uh my strategy and trying to experience the ticking and even the synchronizing if my foot did synchronize and try to just be mindful every time and patient with it and it was a completely different experience and eventually i was able to uh, be free from any kind of obsession for the clock. So be aware of what we're actually striving for. It's not it's not about changing our experiences, it's about changing the way we look at them. Your answer regarding the YouTube addiction question really made me think. So is the correct approach to mindfulness understanding? Because usually we are just told, be mindful. Is it the right attitude? Being mindful of your experiences in order to understand them? Yes. Mindfulness allows you, you to see clearly is the word we use. Understanding is important to qualify that, that we don't mean intellectually under, intellectual understanding. It's just un, understanding in the sense of not being confused or uh, deluded about them, to see them as they actually are, to understand them as they actually are, not intellectually, but just have a relationship and a perspective and a perception of them that is in line with their true nature. So there's no expectation that they should be something else. There's no being taken off guard when they aren't the way you expect, because your understanding of what they are is actually how they are. That's what we're aiming for. That's what mindfulness gives you. That's what, the words are mindful, are sati and vipassana. Sati leads to vipassana, seeing clearly. What are the benefits of walking meditation? There are five benefits of walking meditation. Walking meditation helps you walk long distances, which was a thing in the Buddha's time. 
it gives you uh, patience and endurance for uh, performing activities that are mon monotonous or uh, that test your endurance. So that's another practical benefit. It helps digest food that you've eaten. It helps with your digestive system. Uh, it actually can help with certain illnesses, so it helps keep your body healthy, keeping the blood flowing and so on. I mean, especially if you're just contrasting it to sitting all the time. There are studies about how even standing still is better than sitting, has some benefits. And the fifth benefit is that the samadhi, the concentration that comes from walking meditation, lasts long. So I guess the idea is it lasts longer than the sitting meditation, but also that if practiced first, it, it supports the focus in the sitting meditation. It's, uh, it's supportive of your sitting practice when, the, when it's done before, before the sitting. I think I have a shopping problem where I buy materialistic things I don't need. How do I stay mindful for that? Well, again, don't focus on the judging aspect. I mean, if you are judging it and worried about it and feeling guilty about it, just try and note those things as part of the uh, experience. So those judgments are also part of the experience rather than taking them as a reason to try to stop what you're doing. And then try and delve into what is the actual experience of having what you call a shopping problem. Rather than seeing it as a problem, try and see it as an experience. So I have a shopping experience where I buy things. Don't, don't judge it as things you don't need or need. Just try and see what's going on. Because if you buy things that you don't need, there's a reason why you're doing that. And that's what we're interested in. Not, not particularly the fact that you don't need it doesn't matter whether you're buying things you do need or don't need. We want to see clearly. And if, you, if upon seeing clearly, you realize that you're buying things out of desire, then that's probably going to lead you to buy things you don't need. That's not important. Uh, it's just a, the benefit of being mindful that you'll never ever buy things that you don't need just because you're too mindful to give in to the greed or to give rise to the greed. When you're mindful, greed doesn't even arise. If you haven't read our booklet, try reading the booklet. If you have, consider doing an at-home course, maybe even an intensive course if you can ever find a way to do that. I have a vocal injury and have felt that I have lost a large part of myself since I cannot make my music until it goes away. I meditate daily and I realize this is not a good way to live. Any advice? Well, good news is that you don't have a self in the first place. <laughs> That's maybe not quite fair to say. Um, let's di let's dissect this, what you mean by losing a lar large part of yourself. So what happens in the mind is the mind develops habits, or we might say engrams. It's a word that's not probably familiar to everyone, but um, kind of programming what you do in certain situations. If you do something regularly, it becomes a part of your programming so that you're constantly being triggered. This, this programming is constantly being triggered because it's habitual. So you do this and you, you're, it's triggered. You do that and it's triggered. You see something and it's triggered. You hear something and it, it just becomes more and more triggered because it's more and more habitual. It becomes more and more a part of your life. So what's really going on is that the mind is triggering the intention to do something. Now, because that's so much a part of your programming, it feels like you've lost a large part of yourself. You haven't. All that's happening is you're being triggered, the intention to, you're triggering the intention to do something that you realize you just can't do. Now, along with that, there's going to be all sorts of emotions. In this case, probably desire, uh, but maybe ego, right? You, you, you feel like it's who you are. Uh, you feel good about yourself when you do it. You feel proud. Uh, or maybe you don't feel it, maybe the opposite, you feel self-conscious and you feel like you're unworthy, you feel like you're you're um, inadequate if you can't do something. And all of that is um, 
uh, I mean, it plays a big part in the cultivation of habits and the the programming of the mind. So all of that is the reality of what's going on, and it's important to describe that and and perceive that to understand what's going on, so that you can even begin to approach your situation. Once you have an understanding of what's going on, or once you have a sort of an idea of what's going on, try and apply mindfulness to those things. So rather than talking about um, these concepts of a self and having lost a part of it, try and describe it in terms of what actually happens. There arises the thought to do something, you can't do it, you feel bad. All of those things are are part of the experience. So note the thinking, note the, the sensual experience, but also note the desire and the disappointment and the bad feeling and so on. Needing to make music, um, it's just, it's, you don't need to make music. What you're doing is creating a narrative of you. This is who I am and I need, you're telling yourself that you need to. Uh, you're convincing yourself, but it's not actually true. We don't need anything. We don't even need to live. We don't need to breathe. We don't need to eat. None of that is actually necessary. If you die, you're just born again. I mean, it's not like any of that's meaningful in any way. And even if you weren't born again, you still wouldn't need to. You'd just die and not come back. I mean, that doesn't mean that something is necessary. It turns out that really the only thing that is truly necessary is mindfulness. Because without that, you get lost and fall into suffering. That's really, it's as simple as that. So once you start to be mindful, everything else sort of sorts itself out. It's just a matter of cultivating mindfulness and protecting your cultivation through various activities like ethics and so on. I often find that I'm too ambitious with the practice and exhaust myself but I'm also afraid to let go of the ambition. Any advice to untangle this? Yeah, well, you said it. I mean, all those things are part of the practice. Being ambitious is, what is that? Figure out what it is. Is it a desire to practice? Or is it a desire desire for results? Is it a feeling of um, uh, need to perform or that sort of thing? Need to control or that? Try and see what it is you're experiencing. Uh, and also being afraid. So what actually happens is be, be, try and see sometimes that we attribute qualities to a self in this way, like I am this, but I am also this. And that's not quite accurate. What's accurate to say is that this arises and at other times this arises, right? That's much more accurate and clear and much easier to deal with because when A arises, note A. When B arises, note B. They don't arise at the same time, and they aren't both you. They aren't you who has both these qualities um, paradoxically or something. No. They're just experiences that arise. So try and note the fear, note the exhaustion, note the ambition, note the desire to untangle it even. Note them as they arise, when they arise. How does one be mindful of the feeling of numbness when you're too numb to be mindful? There's no such thing. When you're numb, just say numb, numb. But the point is most likely that you're ignoring other things that you should be mindful of. Maybe there's an apathy, there's a disliking, maybe there's a yearning or a depression. Look at the hindrances, liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. All of those things. There's no such thing as... I don't know what it would mean to be too numb to be mindful, but I'm pretty sure it's not you because you were mindful enough to actually post your question, and that requires mindfulness. I am confused with what are my responsibilities toward my parents as a layman practitioner. Am I obliged to fulfill their wishes? Okay, so let's be clear that there are two levels of reality. One is conceptual reality, and the other is ultimate reality. 
in terms of ultimate reality, we don't have any obligations. There's only what leads to stress and suffering and what doesn't lead to stress and suffering. And and I guess more third category, what leads away from stress and suffering and to freedom from stress and suffering. Uh, but in terms of the... So, so in that regard, there's no ends, ifs, or buts. Everything is cut and dried. It either does lead to suffering or it doesn't. It either is the right thing to do or it isn't. That's on an ultimate level. That's only the experiential level. Everything that we experience is broken up into that reality, wholesome, unwholesome, and indeterminate. But in the world, you have a much more murky situation, and its very nature is murky because it doesn't actually exist. It's all conceptual. It's all relative. And so to say you have any responsibilities to your parents is never going to be absolutely true. On the one hand, it has to relate back to ultimate reality. So does this activity involve wholesome qualities of mind or unwholesome qualities of mind and what you'll find is that as you become more discerning about what qualities of mind are wholesome and what qualities are unwholesome you tend to have a in general a better relationship with people like your parents and a better appreciation of the things that people like your parents have done for you and so it doesn't appear to be a responsibility it appears to be the right thing to do now, as far as figuring out in general what the right thing to do in the world is, it's never going to be cut and dry like you have to do X, you have to do Y, because it's not, again, it's not real. It's based very much on the situation in your mind, in the minds of the people around you, and and in all of the many factors that are conventional and contribute to your situation, like what is your relationship with your parents? What have they done for you? Is, is your father just a sperm donor and you never met him and neither did your mother, that sort of thing? Um, then you might say, oh, well, I'm thankful that he did what he, you know, what he did, but it's not really all that meaningful. On the other hand, if your parents gave you a house and clothes and food and so on for 18 years or longer, then, well, you probably owe them quite a bit or, or should have a sense of appreciation for that because if you don't, it's a sign that you're not very mindful. So with all things in the world, questions about what I should do and, and what are my responsibilities, it's always going to be about being reasonable, uh, not taking things to an extreme like you must do this or you must do that, but having a clear awareness of your reality that allows you to be reasonable and do things that are not extreme, that are not the cause for stress and suffering in others, but also not concerned overly with preventing the stress and suffering for others because that's not possible and that's not really realistic. It's not reasonable to think that you can make everyone happy all the time, right? So be aware of this limit of the conventional reality and try and use mindfulness as a means of helping to inform your decisions without trying to come to any rules or laws of the way things should be in the world because it's always going to be dependent on your situation uh, specifically being obliged to fulfill people's wishes uh, that relates to the idea of being able to make people happy you can't really make anyone else happy so that's not really the point the point is having a good quality of mind and gratitude is a, is a sign of a quality of mind. Ingratitude is a sign of someone who is not very mindful and not very clear-minded. So you can, if you feel gra grateful, you can take that as a good sign. If you don't feel grateful to people who have helped you, you might want to be concerned with that. Is doing the at-home meditation course first before I apply for the foundation course necessary? I live in Ontario and I would like to apply for the foundation course. It's not required. It's uh, it's a soft requirement. So we would like you to do it first. It's in your benefit. It's to your benefit. It's also to our benefit. It makes it easier for us to teach you. But it definitely makes it, mostly makes it easier for you to complete the course, the foundation course. If you've done other intensive courses, that might not be such an issue. Uh, but on the other hand, if you've done other courses in another tradition, it might be as much of an issue. It, to ease into the new tradition can be quite useful. The other thing is, 
you're not going to be able to do an intensive course here in Ontario until February. So that's our rationale by of ma- our rationale behind making it a soft requirement is you've usually got more than enough time to at least partially complete it. So no, it's not necessary that you finish it. But if you're not uh, willing or interested in starting at home course and doing as much of it as you can, it kind of is a red flag for us. It gives us a sense that there might be some issues with this person. So as a show of good faith, and that's not all it is, of course, but um, as a means of showing and and giving us the sense that you're a good a good candidate for the intensive course, um, you really should start the at-home course as soon as possible. I, I mean, ideally, we would like you to have finished it, yes. But no, it's... No, I mean, we on a case by case basis, we will allow people to come um, who haven't done it. But if you say to us, say to us, no, I just don't feel like it. I think in four months or three months, I'll have some a chance to do it. Then we might say, mm, maybe we won't accept you. Be aware that we might say that. I'm not sure, but we might. I experience a large amount of pain and numbness, and the entire sit then just becomes me watching the pain, noting disliking, pain, etc. Am I okay to just adjust my position after a bit of observing? Yeah, I mean, make it maybe a little more than a bit, and try to be as patient as you can, but if you move, just try and move mindfully. There's no problem with that. You're you're still going to experience more pain. It's not going to fix the problem. But when you feel like you, you you feel like moving, just try and be mindful of moving. Just make sure it sounds like you're doing great. Just patience. You're just building patience and clarity, and and just yeah, the clarity to perceive the pain in a new way. Eventually, it'll become less um, unpleasant, and the disliking will start to go away. You're already seeing how how harmful the disliking is. And as you see it more and more clearly, it's just going to get better. And it probably already is getting better, and you don't see it. You don't see the results right away. Don't worry about the results. Just be patient and understand and appreciate the quality of objectivity, how, how beneficial it is in terms of changing your bad habits. While meditating... I find it easier to detach from persistent hindrances when I think critically about them. Is this worth something, or am I getting lost in concepts when I should only be noticing? So, um, a couple of points. First, be clear that we're not trying to make things easier. We're not trying to make the practice easier, so we're not trying to make it easier. Making it easier is a cop-out because it's trying to control the situation. It's trying to change the situation. It's based on a desire for things to change. And that's not what meditation is about. That's not what mindfulness is about. So if you feel yourself attached and you just can't stop yourself, that's part of what you're trying to see. If you're deluding yourself into thinking that you can force yourself to detach that's just delusion that's that's uh, not in line with reality so when there are persistent hindrances well that's your reality try and be mindful of the persistent hindrances there's no way out but through thinking critically really most likely what it's doing is just distracting you long enough so that they go away and distracting yourself away from hindrances is not a good idea it's not a solution why because the way through is to understand and to see clearly and to perceive as they are, to 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 no longer be uh, deluded by them, by the things that make you upset and by the being upset itself. Because all of these things, when you're deluded about them, you react to them. Distracting yourself with critical thinking isn't going to help, isn't going to give you the knowledge and understanding of the, about them. It's a, just intellectual knowledge. It's not going to change the way you look at them, not intrinsically. I mean, there's some roundabout superficial help that can go on, but it's never going to cut very deep. So yes, it is just getting lost in concepts, and yes, you should just be noting and patiently, not trying to make things easier. 
Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There's one more question in tier one. Do you have time to answer? For sure. How do I deal with the guilt I feel when I realize that I am so far on my spiritual path, but the people around me are somewhat uneasy and suffering, and I try to help them, but I can't seem to? Well, if you're still feeling guilt, it's you're not you're not at the end yet. So the guilt is something that you, you should take as an object. I mean, that's really all that can be said about this, is that guilt is a part of meditation. Um, and there's more there, probably. There's a desire to help people, which is um, which is not wholesome, in fact. And there's also the potentially, uh, you haven't said anything to give it away, but potentially look for ego. Um, I mean, one could look at what you say and, and suggest that there might be ego about feeling that you're so far on your spiritual path. It's generally conceit. So you do have to be on the lookout for conceit or just be aware that you could be feeding your conceit as far as thinking yourself better than others. I mean, that's not necessary. That's not necessitated by what you said, but look for it. Um but the, the the idea that you can help people, so there's going to be surrounding that some sense of control that you can control and manipulate others, and that's not a very good outlook. Helping others should really come naturally. This is why these question and answer sessions are so appealing, because there's no question that um, the, the help is sought, right? You're seeking my help, so I don't have to be, be wary of my desire to help others or to change others or something. Not as wary, anyway. Uh, it's much more wholesome, I think, and much more organic, natural. Uh, there's not this artificial pushing Buddhism on you. Nobody could say that I'm out here pushing Buddhism on people because it's clear that people have come to me. No. If you think like that, it, it, it's a much more um, comfortable, content way to live. Uh, and yeah, you, you, I mean, you bring up a good point that you, you look around and you feel bad for everybody, for those people who aren't very mindful. And unfortunately, that's just still just a sign of, of your own attachments. It actually isn't proper to feel bad for other people. It's proper to have an inclination to help others whenever you can, but you don't need the feeling bad part in order to be inclined to help others. You don't want that. You don't need to want to help them. You don't need to feel sad for them. You don't need to feel guilty. None of that's actually a part of the inclination to help others. Inclination to help comes from wisdom. It, and and it, ha it should come from wisdom because otherwise you can be inclined to help when there's no need or good, good or uh, ability to help. And so you become frustrated and burnt out when you can't, and you often try to help in the wrong ways. If your desire to, if your inclination to help is not based on wisdom, you, you end up getting in trouble. So try and focus on the wisdom aspect. Don't worry, helping others is one of many things that you shouldn't be concerned with. Because once you're wise, your, your activities are going to be dictated by that wisdom. And sometimes you'll help people, sometimes you won't help people, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that whatever you do in whatever situation, it's based on wisdom. That's the most important. Based on clarity of mind. Don't have some kind of need to do X, Y, or Z, like I, I have responsibility to do this, you know, responsibility to help people or so on. The only thing you could really say again as having a responsibility is being mindful to see clearly. Everything else just comes naturally, should come naturally. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Good session. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.